Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 204, War Gaming to Victory. When the U.S. entered the war after Pearl Harbor, we have seen how much the Americans struggled with a U-boat menace during the first six months of 1942. For example, Admiral Ernest J. King, the Chief of Naval Operations, or CNO, was slow to come around to the convoy system. He believed his warships would better spend their time hunting subs, not protecting merchantmen. But the British, being in the war sooner, had already figured this out. They just had to teach their American cousins. But the story of how they learned to take on the German U-boats is in itself a story. With the U.S. now in the war, London started making plans for the mass shipment of supplies to the home island from the American East Coast. As such, the Western Approaches Tactical Unit, or WATU, was put together at the opening of 1942 to create and then disseminate to various commands new tactics in dealing with the U-boats on their journey over. Now, before Poland was invaded, the British Royal Navy felt pretty good about their counter-sub options. During the Great War, the convoy system and sonar technology, or ASDIC, had been created, and up until 1939, the British were confident these were enough to combat the U-boats. Even better, the German U-boat fleet was known to be small, and only a few of theirs were ocean-capable. But the icing on the cake was that those U-boats would have to pass by Dover Strait, or through the North Sea, to get access to British shipping. It would be then that they would receive a warm welcome from the British Royal Navy, or RAF. But all that changed when France was knocked out of the war. From the second half of 1940 on, the Nazis were able to station subs on the French or Atlantic coast. Just like that, half of what the British were counting on no longer existed. In time, there would be eight U-boat flotillas and other boats, but the flotillas were stationed two flotillas each at Brest, Lorient, Saint-Nazaire, La Roche, and Bordeaux. To match this, the British started building and employing more escorts for their convoys. It was, like most wars do, becoming a numbers game. But with radar, Churchill was hoping that the new technology and the new tactics would give the British the advantage. To be sure, the losers of the Great War, the Germans, were creating updated tactics for the next conflict. For example, Karl Donitz, the U-boat commander, had his men test ways to evade the ASDIC, which, in between the wars, was only installed at large port facilities or on capital ships, which meant that the majority of merchantmen's escorts would have to rely on spotters, not radar. Point to the Germans. Also, Donitz proved that attacking a convoy with a large pack of subs was more efficient than a single sub trying to use stealth to achieve the same thing. This was the beginning of the wolf packs. They would start out in a line in the Atlantic, but when a target ship or convoy was spotted, those of the line would converge and hit the convoy from differing angles, thus overwhelming the escort's abilities. As the ASDIC system was still crude when the war broke out, the U-boat captains would counter this by diving at a fast speed, 
cut off their diesel engines, and then rely on their batteries for a few quick turns. Even better, if the escort let off a depth charge, if it did not kill the sub, then his explosion would blind the Aztec for a few seconds. Thus, the sub was set free with a quick turn. The guessing game had to start all over again, certainly if the sub came to a stop and waited for a target to sail closer to it. As the war went on, the captain of a sub had his sonar crewmen listen for the splash of the depth charge as it hit the water. When that was detected, the captain would order a quick dash forward and an abrupt course change. The splash gave the sub a few seconds of counter moves. As Berlin ramped up its production of war goods, certainly U-boats, Donitz was able to try different things. As more boats came online, he was able to make bigger wolf packs. And this sounds impressive on paper. But the bigger the pack, the fewer of packs there were to spread throughout the Atlantic and closer to Europe. Also, the more U-boats there were, the more radio traffic was generated, and the British were keenly listening out for this. Yet, try as they might, the British were having trouble breaking the Kriegsmarine ciphers. But then, on May 1941, the codebooks of U-boat 110 were captured, along with her Enigma machine, in a daring raid, which will be covered soon. But then came a different kind of war. The U-boat messages would be intercepted and then sent to Bletchley Park for decryption. But Donitz was no idiot. He changed their codes more often than did the Army or Luftwaffe. And when that happened, those at Bletchley Park had to kick it into overdrive to break this latest code. Once the code was broken and the messages went back to being read, the Western Approaches Command could then have a convoy change course, or they could send escorts to a position known to have U-boats in the area. Then the German Navy would change their codes again, and the process would repeat itself numerous times. And the British found another way to use the communications between the U-boats and their listening posts. They could use the high-frequency direction-finding, or huff-duff, to roughly triangulate the position of a sub. But at first, this was information that had to be radioed to the escorts. In time, all the ships would have their own huff-duff on board. Although the U-boats had many successes off the American coast, as we have seen, in time, Enough planes were built to cover the coastlines. This left the more savvy U-boat commanders the option of staying just out of range of the land-based aircraft who had Aztec. The obvious Allied response to this were carriers. But this was easier said than done. First, there weren't that many carriers lying around, given the budget cuts of the United States and Great Britain after the Great War, Secondly, the Allies found out very quickly that carriers were the sweetest of honey to the sub-crews. They would risk much to sink that metal-earning vessel. In time, the Atlantic would see merchant aircraft carriers and escort carriers, something small that scout planes could take off, and yet, despite this, they were a less tempting target for the U-boats. Also, the earlier convoys went out without much protection. For example, convoy HX-84 in November of 1940, a convoy that went from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Liverpool, 
was only protected by the armed merchant cruiser HMS Jervis Bay. The only thing that Jervis could do was position itself relative to the convoy where they thought a sub was most likely to attack. That's it. A year later, in December of 1941, the British were doing much better as convoy HG-76, 32 merchant ships strong, was protected by 17 escorts, including the carrier HMS Audacity. With this prize in the balance, forget the supply ships for a second, Donitz sent out 10 U-boats. Now, Captain Frederick Johnny Walker, in charge of the escorts, was an aggressive commander, and he went after those 10 subs as they were going after his carrier. HG-76 was on its way back to Liverpool from Gibraltar. In fact, HMS Audacity had sailed out with OG-76 going from Liverpool to Gibraltar at the end of October. And now, on December 19, 1941, the carrier would escort some of the merchantmen back home. The Audacity had on board the 802nd Naval Air Squadron, or 802 NAS, of the fleet air arm. On board were eight martlets, really Grumman F4F Wildcat fighters, and ten pilots. Normally, a patrol of two martlets would be up in the air for two hours each, patrolling out ahead, looking for enemy submarines. Back on November 8th, 1941, Kampfgerschwalder 40, or Air Wing 40, based in southwestern France, sent out six Falk Wolf Condor planes. They were looking for convoy SL-91, which was heading for Liverpool from Freetown, Sierra Leone. These German medium to heavy bombers worked well with the U-boats. In October 1940, the air unit attacked the 42,000-ton liner Empress of Britain, and later the ship was finished off by U-boat 32. Between August 1940 and February 1941, this maritime patrol unit sank 343,000 tons of Allied shipping. But their best moment came in February 1941, when the convoy HG-53 was attacked by the bombers and U-boat 37. Together, they sank the 967-ton Norwegian freighter Tejo and the British freighters Jura, Dagmar I, Varna, and of course, the massive Britannic. The Allies replied to this air threat by converting some merchant ships to CAM ships, or catapult aircraft merchant ships. Its rocket-propelled catapult launcher could help a Hawker Hurricane lift off. As such, the airmen of KG-40 were told to stop taking on these planes, as they could be nearby. Instead, they were to focus on locating and reporting in of any sightings of convoys. But back to the attack on convoy HG-76. When the convoys had spotted SL-91, the radar on Audacity picked up two of the six condors. Commander F. Johnny Walker, a.k.a. The Boss, sent up two martlets to investigate. One of the condors managed to get into the clouds and make good its escape. However, the other bomber was trapped and thus had to fight. 
Dodging in and out of the clouds, the crew of the German bomber was able to splash one of the martlets, but the other used its preoccupation to send it into the Mediterranean. A few hours later, two more condors were found. One was taken out as the British pilot chose to fly right at it, its guns blazing. This worked, but the other condor was given the time it needed to leave the area. KG-40 had lost too many planes for one day, and besides, they never took the time to direct any U-boats to the convoys or escorts as they were supposed to. Instead, they wanted the glory. But at the very least, KG-40 now knew of the Audacity's presence. As HG-76 left Gibraltar, she was comprised of 32 ships, commanded by Vice Admiral R. Fitzmaurice on his steamship Spiro. Meanwhile, Commander Johnny Walker, in charge of the 36th Escort Group, had two sloops and seven corvettes. But on this voyage, he would be joined by the Audacity and her three escorting destroyers, two more sloops, and two corvettes. In all, 17 warships. Besides these ships, there was an independent group of destroyers from Force H, and they would be sub-hunting on their own. By this point, the approach taken by Donitz was to have his subs send a short message every 30 minutes, in case they came across a convoy or ship. In return, when a convoy was spotted, Donitz would order the closest subs to gather, and when together, they would wait for night and then go in. Between air patrols and German spies in neutral Spain, who had a view of the Gibraltar harbor, HG-76 became known and Donitz ordered several subs to rendezvous. First, they would form a patrol line, and then, when the carrier was found, it would be attacked. There would be seven U-boats in this attack, and U-127 was already in position, having missed out on a previous convoy. Donitz told the Wolf Pack that they were to go after the carrier Audacity at all costs, and considering several crews were inexperienced, the Admiral decided to send three more U-boats. When HG-76 left Gibraltar on December 14, 1941, she was joined by a smaller convoy heading for Cape Town. Right away, Donitz was made aware of their departure by spies in Spain. Soon thereafter, U-boats 74 and 77 spotted the convoy as the subs had been heading into the Mediterranean. U-boat 77 went after a Portuguese freighter, but when U-boat 74 went after the larger convoy, it was turned away by ferry swordfish planes based at Gibraltar. Still, the subs formed up, but a bit to the south. The South African-bound convoy was harassed, but HG-76 was left alone. For now. By the next day, December 15th, HG-76 was starting to pull away from the European coast. As such, at 8.15 a.m., the biplane ferry swordfish was switched out for a Lockheed Hudson, an American light bomber serving as a coastal reconnaissance plane. They had longer range and constant vigilance was needed. At other times, besides the Lockheed Hudson, there might be a consolidated Catalina or flying boat built by all of the Allies before the war was over. And today, they're still used as water bombers fighting fires. 
For the next two days, these planes, working with the martlets from Audacity, kept the subs away. Yet, there were a few tense moments, like when U-127 found a way in. At 11 a.m. on December 15th, the ASDEC of the HMAS Nestor located the sub, chased her, and in time, sunk her. The growing wolf pack close by had just been put on notice. The British system of cooperation had just worked, as planned, but now it was time for Donitz's system to come to the fore. At midday on December 16th, the convoy was spotted by a Falkwolf Condor from KG-40. It had flown out from Bordeaux. This time, doing its job versus seeking glory, the plane's crew guided U-108 to the convoy and then began bringing other subs in. That night of December 16th, the Wolf Pack moved in, knowing that U-574 was also on the way. It was ordered to be in position by the next morning. And by the morning of December 17th, the convoy was beyond the range of Gibraltar-based aircraft. The four subs nearby wasted no time getting into position. But two of the subs, U-67 and U-108, again were chased away. Still, the situation started to heat up. At 9 a.m., a martlet from the Audacity had spotted a surfaced U-boat about 23 miles or 37 kilometers away from the convoy. It circled the enemy vessel again and again so the escorts could catch up to it. A corvette got close enough for an attack and it led with its Aztec, but there was no follow-up explosion heard. Not giving up, just after noon, still December 17th, the destroyer HMS Stanley, commanded by Lieutenant Commander D.B. Shaw, spotted U-Boat 131 on the surface. A martlet was sent to attack, but this time the Stork, Penn and three destroyers were sent to the same coordinates to finish off the job. The martlet, obviously, got there first, and the pilot did not hesitate to dive down guns blazing. However, U-131 saw the threat coming and had its own deck gun open up at the same time. The pilot of the plane was hit. The martlet continued its downward trajectory. But if the crew of U-131 felt safe, they should not have. For soon, the escorts were in the area and began harassing the sub. In fact, they had started firing when the sub was still at extreme range. It's assumed the ships were either trying to help or avenge the pilot. However it worked out, U-131 dove and tried to get away, but the depth charges around her brought her back up against her will, and then the Allied surface ships finished her off. While it's cruel to justify exchanging lives in war, the loss of a scout plane versus a U-boat, that's something the Royal Navy could live with. And now that the two sides were in close proximity, the action stayed heavy. That night of December 17th, the U-boats came in again, but were unable to sink or damage any vessel. For example, U-107 was forced away and down by the Corvette Pemstepmom. Meanwhile, U-67 got in close enough for an attack, but was unsuccessful, and the other flower-class Corvette, Convovulus, then chased her away. 
The next morning, December 18th, at 9.06 a.m., the destroyer Stanley received an Aztec contact seven miles away. Several escorts raced to that area and dropped 50 depth charges. Fighting against subs requires patience, and this time it paid off. 30 minutes later, U-434, the intended target of the attack, surfaced and the crew got off just before the boat went over and down for the last time. This was just north of Madeira, just off the Moroccan coast. All 42 crewmen were rescued by the British Royal Navy. But not all goes according to plan during war. Just before noon, still December 18th, the Audacity picked up two aircraft approaching, and so they scrambled two marlettes. However, as the fighters approached the Condors, the guns on both Allied planes jammed. The Condors got away with an update on the enemy's location. However, surprisingly, the rest of the day was quiet. But to add to the stress, the Audacity contacted the convoy to say, it's been confirmed that three more U-boats are on their way to intercept. The water stayed quiet for most of the night of December 18th, but that silence was deceptive. At 4 a.m., now December 19th, the destroyer Stanley detected U-574. The sub was behind her, obviously sneaking up for an attack. As the destroyer was behind the convoy, clearly the U-boat was trying to cut in a path from the rear. Having the Stanley in her sights, U-574 fired three torpedoes in a standard spread. And tactics like these usually pay off. The Stanley was hit by two of the three torpedoes. Twelve minutes later, she was gone. The Stanley went down about 330 miles west of Cape Sinise in southern Portugal. However, U-574 would pay for its victory. As she tried to get away, HMS Stork, a long-range sloop which had been behind the Stanley as well, gave chase. Locating U-574 with her Aztec, depth charges were dropped. Clearly something had happened as the U-boat shot to the surface. Not being able to dive again, the U-boat tried to get away, but the stork poured on the speed. The captain's idea, his last name was Walker, was to ram the stricken U-boat. However, the sloop found that the sub could turn just as tight as she could. Thus, U-boat 574 kept evading contact. But Walker did not give up either. Keeping up the chase, the sloop fired on the surface sub and shot up snowflakes or flares to keep an eye on her in the dark. Walker's patience paid off, and within 12 minutes of the action starting, the sloop ran over the sub just ahead of the conning tower. But here's the part when Walker or someone on the crew got just a little too excited. As the sub was rolling over, literally under the sloop, someone released a depth charge. Yes, it finished off the sub, but as his explosion was so close to the ship, her bows were pushed in and her Aztec dome was destroyed. While this had been going on, the U-Boat 108 managed to damage another merchantman called Ruckinge. That crew was forced to abandon ship. 
The ship's captain, Master William Albert Ross, knew the damage was significant, but the ship was salvageable had there been facilities nearby. But there were not, and no one wanted this ship and its cargo getting into Axis hands. So the corvette HMS Samphire was sent to send her to the bottom. With that done, the stork and the Samphire spent the last minutes of darkness picking up the survivors from Stanley. Soon the British steam merchant Finland joined in on the rescue. Three crewmen of the Ruckinge were not found, and one of those was Captain William Albert Ross. The threat next came from the skies. Falk Wolf Condors came on the scene, but one was shot down and the other was damaged before it could make good its escape. Later that day, more Condors arrived, but a Martlet pilot flew right at his target, his guns blazing. He may have come a bit too close. The Condor was destroyed and the Martlet returned to the carrier. However, parts of the German plane were wrapped around her tailwheel. Next time, we'll finish the story of Convoy HG-76 and return to the story of the Wrens of the Western Approaches Tactical Unit and how their wargaming helped secure the Battle of the Atlantic.